I was a city kid, and if you live in St. Louis, it's it's inner city, and didn't really have any exposure or anybody in my family that fished. And right in the when we finally moved to the county, St. Louis County, there was a little 19-acre farm in the middle of the subdivision. It was the the farmer that sold all that land, and he had a couple of farm ponds on there. And I traded out some work on the farm for the right to fish two of the ponds that he had. And he wouldn't let anybody else in there. He'd, he'd run you off. And so, you know, I, I worked my way in there to ha- being able to fish. And I fished the little creeks and whatever I could find. And I fished for a year and never caught anything. And it tells you a little bit of something. I'm either persistent or stupid, one or the other. Which, <laughs> either which way, uh, you know, I had dug up, I had a chicken coop up there and I went over there and turned over one spade of, of chicken droppings and, and got a bunch of night crawlers, put them in the proverbial coffee can and had one rod and it was an old black rod with a fly reel on it, a utility reel on it. Didn't know what I was doing and I was going to use it like a cane pole and just use a Kendall, a pendulum cast. So I had a little can of night crawlers and I went down there and just kind of walked around and looked for a minute. There was a willow tree right on the on the uh, bank, and I thought, well, that'd be a good place because I could be in the shade, and maybe the fish would be in the shade. So kind of a, a very loosely fit game plan. But like I said, I fished probably 15 or 20 times and never caught anything, but I liked it. I mean, I liked being out. Well, I hooked up a, a, a little wire hook with a night crawler on it and had a little float and a couple of little split shot on it, and that's when a cork was really a cork. And uh, I just did a little pendulum cast out there in front of that willow bush, and that float went down, and I, I got excited, and before you know it, I, I look like a tuna fisherman. I jerked that bass out, and it fell right at my feet. And I always tell people, I don't know who was more surprised, me or the fish. And it was probably about a, it was probably about a pound, pound and a half. You know, it wasn't gigantic, but it was a big fish to me, and it was my first fish. And I knew at that point that that was something that was going to change my life. Not that I was ever going to be really good at it or go in the directions that I went. I just knew it was something that I... I like the feeling, and I think every time I go out, that's the feeling I want to get again. It's just like it's the first fish. You know, I, I'm famous for telling people about quotes, and it's like I say, if you have, if you have the ability to look at things like you're looking at them for the first time, and you look at them for the last time, and that's what happens when I go fish. I get that feeling like the first time I fished, and I always look at it and say it might be the last time. So I savor every one of those moments. That's that's so true. And and the thing that I, that I love about this question to tell us how you first time you remember fishing is a little bit of variation in there. One, I, I got permission. Two, I went with a friend, a family member. We went to a lake, to a river, whatever. Or three, as in when I started really fishing, is sneaking into a pond. But for the kid that's a young kid that has the the gumption, the guts, the will to go up to somebody and ask, hey, can I fish your your pond, your lake, your part of the river or whatever, that's a, that's a pretty sizable load for a young kid. And there's a lot of that out there. It surprises me, the, the number of folks that, that start that way. Yeah, and it's the lessons that go along with that. You know, it's approaching an adult and asking permission, doing things the right way. I never wanted to fish looking over my shoulder. Yeah, right. I wanted to, I w- I wanted to be invited to fish and be able to fish for as long as I wanted and, and follow all the directions that I was given. So it does. there's life lessons that go along with all the stuff you do in the outdoors. This is the one that gets me. The kid comes up to you, takes his or her hat off, you know, and is like, hey, can you help me somehow? Whatever. A fly. Show me where to fish can I fish your pond? I mean, that, that to me, I'm like, all right, that, that kid's got something, whatever that something is, you know, I'm, I'm using air quotes here. Uh, they've got that something that we're all looking for. Well, welcome into Southeastern fly. Uh, this is David Perry. And today we are, uh, talking to Joey Monteleone and Joey is a, an angler. Uh, he fishes conventional gear and fly fishing. He's known throughout middle Tennessee, from many different sides. I guess the first time I saw you, Joey, was probably on Tennessee's Wild Side. Uh, And then you and I talked a little bit before we started recording this, and both of us crossed paths uh, as we were working with one of the local charities, United Way. You were doing some, giving some speeches and and helping with the... uh, the annual fundraising and I was putting together fundraising. We ended up in a vehicle together going to uh, one of the local, one of the local businesses to get, to get their, uh, their fundraising effort underway. So that was, that was the first time I think that we had met. Uh, and then we've crossed paths around some of the rivers and stuff like that and, and in parking lots and that sort of thing. We're going to get down today really into the nitty gritty. This is a little different. This Joey, this is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do. 
Uh, normally we talk to folks and we ask them, you know, what are your biggest influences and that sort of thing. This is going to be very technical. The, the listener, uh, us as the listener, we're going to be able to, to hear some things today about fishing, about construction of different baits and lures. So Joey's job is going to be to go through that. My job is going to be to convert that information over and help some of the, the listeners look at look at fishing, fly fishing in general, a different way. The way that I like to put it is if a conventional fisherman builds a lure, they may paint it differently, put different textures uh, of paint, different textures within the, the formation of the lure itself as they, as they build that. Uh, placing the hooks in different ways they may go as far this is the joke part they may go as far as putting two mercury out many mercury outboards on the back uh, and using a remote control where you flip that over so that's one extreme <laughs> you flip that over a fly angler might try to build that same lure or that same uh, fly if you will they may use peach fuzz off of uh uh, a juvenile goat's beard you know so it's two really extremes in a lot of ways that that's a that's a two very extreme examples but we can get that far into it uh if we want to and try to try to make something come to life if you will that'll attract that one fish or that that big number of fish or even that fish of a lifetime so we're going to look at it from a couple of different angles um i had the I had the pleasure of talking to Joey about, I guess it's been a week ago or so that we talked the first time. We got real technical and we got real technical real quick and we had a good discussion and it was a two-way discussion. I learned a lot uh, that I think that we will be able to pass along today or this evening to the other fishermen, fly fishermen. And, and I would say if you're a fly angler, uh, and you're a pretentious flying, or you may not get much out of this. You know, if you're a dry fly only, I want to stand it on two hackles and one piece of the tail, eh, maybe you'll get something out of it, maybe you won't. But if you've got a little bit of an open mind, especially if you're a streamer fisherman, fishing meat, even nymph fisherman will catch a, gets, get a lot of information out of this because we'll, we'll get into later my plan, if this works out, plan is to get into where fish hide, where they stay, things to look for, presentations how to fish different different ledges, wood, shoals, that sort of thing. So that's the plan. But we're talking to Joey today. Joey, you've been you've been around Middle Tennessee for a long time. Uh, you do a radio show on 650 WSM uh, every morning at, uh, at, what time is it, 525 or something like that? 525 a.m., yes, sir. Yeah, 525 a.m., which is, which is pretty early. And you've been doing... You've been doing speaking engagements and seminars for for a long time. You're a former member of the Outdoor Writers of America Association, Tennessee Outdoor Writers Association. You used to be a fishing guide too, didn't you? I, I did. I did. It's not as much fun as people think. You get some great <laughs> stories out of it. You don't make a lot of money, but you make some new friends, and it, it you know, it really is. It's a it's a, a very unique way to pass on what it is that we've learned. And if you fish with anybody, whether you're guiding or fishing for fun or casting for cash, as I like to say, in tournaments. You'll either learn something or reinforce something you knew already if you keep an open mind. And that's the big plus to, you know, like you were talking earlier about how we met each other. And, you know, when, you, when you're an outdoor person, I call it same faces, different places that, you know, you'll run into people and it could be, could be in the woods you know, getting ready for turkey season, or it could be uh, a, a wading a trout stream, or, you know, you you just be, and it, the conversation always turns to what it is that we love to do, and so it's, for me, it's everything outdoors, and I'm always interested, everybody's got a story, and I'm always interested in their story, and interested in passing on what I've learned somewhat the hard way, you know, not having a, a fishing background, or people in my family that like to fish, I learned to be really observant, and try to apply those lessons, and toss out what doesn't work, and keep what does work. You know, everybody has a story, but nowadays, and it, it wasn't this way 15, 20 years ago. Everybody had a story, but now we've got a photo on our phone to back it up. Uh, and everybody wants to show you the big fish. Uh, and, and I'm all for, I mean, I'll, I'll pull my phone out in a hurry. Uh, I'm, you know, it's like I'm a gunslinger. But what I'm starting to get into is uh, tell me how you, you know, wh what type of water were you in? Not necessarily exactly where were you, but maybe, maybe what river, what lake you, were you on? And then how'd you catch it? I want to hear that story behind it. You know, what, what baits were working or flies were working or, you know, were you fishing a ledge? Was it a drop off? How long had you been out there? Was it the first 15 minutes that you caught that muskie or was this your 15th trip and it's been, you know, put in 
40 hours on the on the on the musky waters so i'm trying to I'm, I'm starting to get a little more into that than i am just looking wow that's you know that's a 20 inch rainbow right there that's a big fish and it is 20 inch trout that's a that's a pretty healthy trout just about anywhere so i can appreciate that but i think i appreciate them letting me know that hey here's the backstory about it. it's, uh, it's an interesting thing that uh what what is a trophy to one person may not be to another person and for me it's like every fish that i catch there's a story behind that i did something that replicated a previous experience you pull up and you you know whether you're paddling up in a kayak or you're wading or whatever and you see a combination of wood and weeds and you say there you go the wood is it stays 24 7 and 12 months out of the year and the weeds the aquatic vegetation harbors uh hatches and provides oxygen and shade and so you see a combination you say you throw over there first cast you catch a fish uh, you know it could be a 20 inch fish it could be a 12 inch fish but it was that you know, it's that putting that puzzle together and, and having that success and even learning off if it doesn't work every time. Again, you just put that in your memory bank and say you're going to run into places when it's it, when you just know. Because I've had people ask me when we're on camera, I'll catch a fish and somebody said, how'd you know? And I said, if I could tell you that, I could be a multimillionaire. <laughs> it's just a combination of experience, applying the knowledge that you've got and a gut instinct. I mean, quite honestly, it's just kind of a it's, it's not a shotgun approach it's kind of a, a gut instinct that there's going to be a fish there and this is what it's going to take to fool them so what, what's the highest likelihood of me catching one 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 may be the wood with some with some uh with vegetation around it that might be very high a very high likelihood when you put together um the needs of a fish and this is where the intersection of fly fishing bait casting cane poles all comes together. A big part of this is understanding what that fish, how that fish lives, what the lifestyle is, what it likes, what it doesn't like. With most fish, and we're talking freshwater, of course, for me, is with most fish, the first thing is they need oxygen. If they can't breathe, they're not going to live anyway, so they need oxygen. And so the rivers and streams that we got, that moving water is more highly oxygenated, and you're, you're more likely to find fish, bigger fish, in those places that have that stream health. They need oxygen. Next thing on the list for them is food. And there's a lot of different things they can eat, but there are other things that are really, really good for them, you know, high in energy and protein. For example, crawfish, and I don't care if it's a trout or a bass or a muskie, they're going to seek out, they're going to eat those crawfish. And whatever's their opportunistic feeders, but they're going to find the, the, the biggest, the, the uh, superior of the species is going to be the one that finds out what the best thing is to eat and finds that. So it's got to be available. So it's oxygen, food, and with a lot of fish, it's cover. So the cover comes in the form of it could be bottom contour. It could be cover that's actually an object like a, a, a offshore stump or a weed bed or something like that. And the last thing is for a lot of fish is a deep water escape route. So if you have oxygen, food, cover and deep water escape those places hold fish all the time so regardless of what it is that you're fishing with in terms of rod reel and maybe even bait you position yourself to be successful by learning what it is that that fish really likes and again that's repeated exposure you know it's kind of like when people say what what day do you go fishing on i said just on the days ending and why i go fishing as often as i can because you learn more by being out there and if you get skunked you still learn something if you didn't catch anything, you learn what they're not doing. So there's a there's a lot of ingredients to this. Speaking of that lie, with with the and we'll let's go back to the wood with the weeds. Now let's add in uh, some moving water. If you're on the river, and then let's add in that escape route. You may catch a fish there today, uh, a big fish there today, and you're gonna. I don't know anybody that can pass that spot up again. You may catch another fish there that's not that same fish that you caught yesterday or last week. So those fish are, are going to be replacing it. You know, if somebody takes one out and moves it or, or takes it off or whatever they do, another fish is going to move in there almost every time because it is that. It's got all those qualities to it. So, yeah, I'm going to fish it every time I go by there, but I'm not always going to catch that same fish. But I'm pretty much, I'm going to be confident in, in that area right there, in that one particular spot. I'm going to tell somebody, get ready, stand up, and get you get your your thinking cap on and here's what we're going to do and generally speaking generally not every time but generally speaking i'm going to they're going to catch a fish well the example i always give people is if you live when, when somebody's looking for a house they're going to say okay it's convenient to shopping there's good school system right there the, there's uh, the roads are good you know the house is nice it's got trees you know whatever so you find it so when you've been in that house 10 15 20 years and you decide you're going to move when you move out it's not like nobody moves back in somebody moves in for the same reasons you moved in so fish do the same thing they will pick a spot and you know uh, i've had 
fish with a lot of people, and sometimes the common term comes up, they call it a honey hole, that those fish will go back into those spots for exactly the same reasons. It's, it's, you take one fish out, another one moves in there because of the food supply, because of the oxygen, because it's got a deep water escape, and it's got the right kind of cover. So it's, uh, you know, it's the, it's the nice neighborhood. So they'll move, you know, they'll move into those. And it's, sometimes it's a pretty sure bet. I call it a milk run sometimes, too, when you have a, a certain spot that you, you can have places that if you're floating a river and you're saying, I always catch one here. I always catch one here. So it may not be that you catch it that day, but that memory bank rolls you right back into that spot where you're saying, you know, and you're probably on point a little bit more and you're probably concentrating a little more. So there's there's a little bit more to it than just kind of flopping something out there and thinking something, something's going to bite it. Right. You've got other things to think about. Sound. Am I am I waiting? Is, is whoever with me or by myself? Am I waiting heavily? Am I in a boat? Am I in a kayak? Am I in a drift boat? I've got a trolling motor going. All those things seem to come into play, too. So you could have that perfect spot, but something be just a little bit off, and that fish might sit down for five minutes and not, not really do anything. They, most, they may soak to the bottom, and then you've missed your shot. It's not because the place wasn't great. It's just that everything wasn't in line. Well, presentation is huge, but noise is a really big thing as far as I'm concerned, and uh, it can be a positive or a negative influence on a fish. And uh, again, when I'm doing seminars, I, usually I pride myself on coming up with some things that people never thought about. And one of the things with the guys with the big sparkly boats that are running trolling motors, or regardless of what size the boat is, when they're running a trolling motor and they're saying they're not catching any fish, and I always I can ask them. I say, how many how many blades you got on your prop? And they'll say, I'm not sure. And I said, I bet it's two because most of them come with two. And I said, change it to three and see what happens. Put a three-bladed prop on there. And sound travels through water five times faster than it does through air. So this is another example of, I don't care if you're a trout fisherman, if you like to catch crappie, catfish, bluegill, whatever else it is, the the philosophy is still going to be the same. The sound travels through water really quickly, and it can turn a fish off or it can draw their attention. Subtle is always good, especially if you're looking for a big fish. And the fly fishermen, as far as I'm concerned, lead the way in a lot of different categories. And when you take a, a number 22 fly and you just let that drift naturally, it can't get much more subtle than that. You know, with a lot of people, you know, I, I always say the great American way is that if a little's good, a lot's better. When people think, well, I want to make a lot of noise and then water's muddy and it's this, it's like, no. I mean, that sometimes that'll work. But to catch big fish consistently, when you crack that code, which I was lucky enough to do several years ago, you start putting together a lot of things and you, you remove the things that you see as a negative and you focus on the things that you know from a presentation standpoint, from a, a spotting a place standpoint, when you, when, you, 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 when you put all those positive things together, be surprised how often you go out there and A, you don't get skunked. And B, you're catching a lot of big fish, so you're getting that affirmation from the fish. They're telling you that you're doing it right. So there's and there's there's a bunch to it. I mean, there's there you know you can most people want to overwork their lures, and again, if you just let it drift and let it fall the way it's supposed to, the lure will, if it's designed properly, it'll do the job it's supposed to do. Most people want to overwork it a little bit, or at least that's my thought. And again, I think that people are influenced so heavily by what they read, and we all know this, that you can read or watch TV and you'll hear two diametrically opposed viewpoints <laughs> on exactly the same thing. So which one of them's right? Well, the one that works for you is the one that's right. And that, I think that's a good way to put it. As far as sound goes, I'm going to back up just a second. So a, a few things that, that I've, the, the three-bladed prop makes total sense, different sound, different. It, it's not letting every fish in the water know that here comes that sound and the next thing you know, here comes a, a shiny fly with a hook sticking out of it and next thing i know i'm gonna have metal in my mouth that's one thing but in a drift boat try to dip just the tips of the oars in to move it whenever you get to where you're going to where you're really setting up to, to properly fish something if you're going to move through same thing with a kayak and the paddles you don't want to you know those the the big hard digs where the paddles are slapping the the water and paddle slapping the side of the boat or the, the kayak those sorts of things waiting if you're waiting with with felt boots Maybe that makes a little bit less sound than a rubber boot. Certainly makes less sound than a boot with metal studs in it. You know, so maybe a little bit quieter approach, maybe a little bit slower approach, less less waves. I'm, I'm wading up to where I'm going to fish. I'm, I'm still good 30, 40 feet away, whatever. I can get my proper men's and my proper drifts. But with those waves from me wading in there, now I throw that fly in. It's bouncing up and down. The fish aren't really super comfortable. Something may not look exactly right. 
and they're going to salt. You go to that spot, which is the perfect spot, but again, you didn't hit everything right. You didn't wait for a couple of minutes. You just walked in and started casting. I don't know how many times I've done that. Joey is row up real fast, stop. All right, throw right over there. I'm going to throw right over there. A lot of times, if you just sit a, sit a minute or two and just watch and let the fish kind of start getting acclimated, start rising again, I think that, that you have a little more success that way. Now, have I tracked that? No, not on paper, not on a phone, not on GPS or anything like that, but I've done it enough times that I know that, all right, this is what I should be doing. Doesn't mean I do it every time, but I do know to do it. Just just some of the things to, to start thinking about as you start that presentation. And let's let's pick up on that, that uh, on working that lure. Now, what I'm going to say is working that fly, specifically in working that fly, I'm going to try to try to get some commonalities, if you will, between lures and, and streamers. Uh, you were talking about crawfish. Now, there's a couple of different crawfish patterns out there that, that we tie. One is a woolly bugger. I mean, I think everybody, if, if you buy if you buy a vise to start tying flies, you're going to have a vise. If you buy one of the kits, you're going to have a vise. You're going to have something in there to make a nymph, and you're going to have something in there to make a woolly bugger. You're going to have a the hackle that you need. You're going to have the body material that you need. You're going to have some marabou for the tail. And you're going to have maybe a bead head. So that's one type of, of imitation of a crawfish. And and I want to get into how we're fishing crawfish here in a minute. So if you can start thinking about that, I'm going to move on to the second type. And there are many, many different types of, of, of flies out there that imitate crawfish. So don't don't call if I don't, you know, don't send me a letter if I don't hit on the on exactly what you think is the best one. But, you know, you have some articulated crawfish, right? So you've got uh, a hook and then some articulation going off the side for the for the pinchers. And, and some kind of flap on the back for the for the tail. And then you have some that are just straight up rabbit strips uh, for the pinchers, which actually work really good. And I mean, and they're very they're they're not basic like a like a woolly bugger's basic, but they're basic when you compare to some of the articulated stuff that uh, that we all come up with that we all love to fish and it looks sexy and all that. I don't know how much better it works, but it does sell the angler, especially if you're sitting at the bin looking through all the flies. That that particular crawfish pattern, if you set three out there, three different types of pattern, the woolly bugger, the rabbit strip, and the and the articulated, pretty much somebody's gonna end up with an articulated in the in their box or in their fly box that, that next day. So that's our type of fly that we would that we can talk about. I mean, as I said, there's many others and I get it, but we had to kind of condense it down a little bit so those would be our three types then I, I switch over to the gear side and you know you have like hard body things that just they're painted up like a crawfish you know and some are heavy some of them have lips on them some don't and then you have some soft plastic stuff with heavy heavy weights on it i say all that to say this there are hundreds hundreds of lures and hundreds of different patterns including color where you place certain things such as weight uh lips you fish it on a sinking line do i fish it on a floating line let's get into some of the crawfish stuff because i find that interesting and right now there's some small mouth that are that are starting to to get uh, fired up in, in the southeast. This is southeastern fly, so we like to talk about southeast every chance we get. So let's talk about the crawfish patterns. Regardless of whether you're fly fishing or you're fishing an, or any kind of artificial bait, to me, the, the color matters somewhat. Now, fish see color actually better than we do. And if you look at fish, most of the time you'll see that when they have large eyes, what they're telling you is I feed by sight. And one really important factor here is before you go into any more detail is to understand they're in survival mode, we're in recreational mode. So if you do something that looks a little sloppy to a fish and it's, it's going to it's gonna kind of forewarn them that it's not something to eat. And more important than color easily for me is your retrieve and your retrieve speed. And understanding if you've ever, and most everybody has done this, or a lot of people have, you roll up your pants legs, you go out into a creek and you lift up rocks looking for what's living in the stream. And for fly fishermen who are trying to match a, a caddis hatch or something else, a mayfly hatch, if that's what is there. But if you lift up a rock and you see a crawfish, if you don't spook them, the first thing they do is start, they walk forward. If you put your finger down in front of them, they'll do two or three really strong thrusts and they move backwards. Knowing that, you can match the movement of the crawfish, which is a lot more important in my opinion, regardless of if you're fishing a bass lure or a trout lure or whatever, a fly or a hard bait or a soft plastic bait, is that you're matching that retrieve, that retrieve's gonna match the natural motion, the natural look of whatever it is that you're trying to catch. 
that retrieve speed is probably the most misunderstood thing because when people get excited and they do when they start catching fish, the natural thing for them to do is retrieve faster. Yes. And it should be just the opposite. If you'll just retrieve slower, you'll catch more fish, smaller baits, and slower retrieves. And I found that to be true whether I was fishing a fly rod or a bait caster or a spinning rod or whatever else it is. I mean, quite honestly, you look at, we used to call them corks or floats. You all have a strike indicator. It's it's really the same thing. We're just talking about it using different language, different verbiage. So one of them could be keeping it off the bottom or just telling you that a fish has taken it, and it's still going to be the same thing. So understanding the movements of crawfish, understanding the movements of minnows or snakes or, you know, when a mayfly or dragonfly lights on the surface and it just drops so delicately, then all of a sudden you see a swirl behind it. That fish sees that, again, because it's in survival mode. You're in recreational mode. You put that in there. You make it look real, and you keep it in the strike zone. Fish will not move as far as, uh, as a member of the media, sometimes I'm embarrassed by people saying that, you know, a fish will move 30 feet to hit a bait. They won't do that because the return on investment on moving that far to hit something, unless you get as much energy out of it as you poured into chasing it down, you get smaller instead of getting bigger. Big fish don't do that. That's why a lot of times if you if you make the perfect cast, you put it right in front of the fish and it drifts down in front of it. It just has to barely move or just or just flare its gills to take it in. That's why you'll catch a big fish with a with they're given a minimum amount of, of uh, energy, expending energy to catch their food. They get bigger. They don't get smaller and they don't stay the same size and they get bigger and they have to eat. I mean, they have to eat regardless. I'm famous for telling people everything eats in October, but the reality is the superior of the species eats often and eats a lot. Yeah, and I, I like to say put the fly in front of the fish's face and make it make a decision of whether or not I want to eat that or move out of the way. I mean, chances are if it's right in their, on their nose and they're in any kind of mood at all and their eyes are open and they're looking, they're probably going to eat it because it's going to take more energy, energy to get out of the way. That's if everything's just right. And I get everything's not always just right. But if it is, chances are they're probably going to eat that, especially if it's a nymph or, or if it's a the right speed. And I've got a friend, and speed is important. Just like you said, you catch a fish, people start retrieving faster. And that's so true. And it's true for all of us. I mean, I would love to say, yeah, you know, I can, I can, I can run the same speed. Uh, even if I catch a, you know, the biggest fish of my life, I mean, I, the biggest fish I caught, trout I caught, I, I completely fell to pieces for about the next 30 minutes and had to sit down and row, you know, just, just to get myself back together because it was, at the time, it was a, the biggest, it was a big fish. But, I mean, I was, people start retrieving really fast. And the, if you retrieve too fast, the fly just basically quits working, especially, uh, now I'm talking streamers here. Marabou doesn't have a chance to move if there is some, some marabou in it the articulation ceases to work because you're not really stopping because you're moving it so fast. Now you will see some folks strip real fast to kind of change up, you know, change up what's something's not working. I mean, I think we all just start, all right, I'm going to work on my speed. And that means a lot of times that people start going faster when really in reality go a little slower, get a little bit better action. I have a friend that I've fish I fish with for probably 10 years uh, started out as a client I've noticed over the past about five years uh, and I noticed this on the Caney Fork he and I were fishing uh, for all well we were fishing for trout but really I mean when it came down to it we were catching skipjack and that was probably just as much fun uh, but I was noticing that when I would fish I would catch a, a fish or two it'd take me you know I don't know five ten minutes he could stand up and then three or four minutes he would have one as all anglers do you start looking at your buddy going i don't know what he's doing but i'm fixing to watch him do i do i have the same fly do i have the same sinking line in this case we were fishing the basically we were swapping out so i had the same everything he had but i noticed that he was he's a little more late he's a lot more laid back than i am a whole lot more and his strip was so much slower so i finally got myself to slow down and that picked my catch rate up and it what was happening was i was probably going too fast at that point and not letting the fly work in your case or on the gear side that would be not letting the lure work well it's and it's it, it's understanding it, it's after you start catching those fish and you put the i call the first fish luck the second fish a clue and the third fish a pattern so <laughs> if you if you if, you know if you're paying attention to where those fish are coming from and what's drawing the strike now what can get confusing is 
we have those days when the fish are really aggressive. Water's, water's the right temperature. You're on a full moon, and they'll hit just about anything. And that's almost a bad lesson for people because they think that works all the time, and it doesn't. So um, understanding what it is that you're doing and putting together a really solid pattern. Now, that changes through the course of the day and it, uh, because trout are found in a lot of clear water. A lot of times when you're looking for a trout, you have to be really subtle and you have to, you know, you want to, you know, you want to keep the sun at your, in your face rather than casting a shadow on the fish you're trying to catch and all that kind of thing. But then as conditions change, so do, so do other things. They'll change. And one, an, another thing that I see with people, and again, sometimes it's too much TV or whatever else it might be, but uh, I hear people say, especially on the bass side, not so much with trout fishermen, but again, there's a correlation there as people say, well, I threw that. It's kind of like making a repeated cast out you, if you're sight fishing and you make a repeated cast and somebody said, well, I made that fish mad. And so it hit the bait. And it's like, when you start attributing human emotions to a fish, I think you're making a mistake because my response is always the same. If you're telling you made that fish mad, that must mean you can make one happy. So I want to know how you make one happy. If you if you can make one mad, you should be able to make one happy. And I don't think it works like that. I think on the fishing of uh, the fly fishing side, because I've watched minnows, and you know when you tell people this, they realize it. They just never realize it to this extent. Is that a minnow essentially swims three ways? It'll just swim along and nothing bothers it. It just swims along, and they swim in in schools because they think there's, you know, it's a natural lesson that there's safety in numbers. They can't get all of us is kind of how it works. Right. But if you see them when something starts chasing them and they get that flight instinct and they start turning, that's when they're going to get hit. Or when you see something that looks like it's injured and it's fallen, its life expectancy just went to about a half a second. So understanding that about a minnow, you can take that white marabou streamer uh, and you can work that understanding what a minnow is supposed to look like. And then, you you know, the timing is everything, putting that in the right place at the right time, keeping it in the strike zone, making it look like it's frightened. Uh, so it's fleeing or it's, or it's injured and it's, and it's going down. It can make a tremendous amount of difference. And again, it's putting all that together at the same time and understanding that. And then after you understand that and you're having some success, understanding that that retrieve speed is at the top of the list. Color matters to a certain degree, but not nearly as much. And I'll challenge people. I'll say, I'll, I'll fish any color you want. I, I just want to know. I want to have some say-so as to what the weight of that is. And if it's a sinking fly, it's probably like why people like me like to fish, you know, topwater poppers, cork-bodied poppers, and sponge spiders, things like that. You can't hardly get that You can't hardly get that wrong. Just kind of throw it in there, and if, you'll, if you have the patience you'll catch fish with it. So there's a lot of things. There's a lot of little lessons that the trout and the bass, that they, they become conditioned to, we talked about noise, but like with a bass, for example, you look at a largemouth bass and you get one that gets five or six pounds and people don't think of these things. When they're little, their gill rakers are really close together. The red part of their gills have little points on them and they're called rakers. Well, when they run through a school of minnows, they get every one of them. Well, when you get to be five pounds and you run through a, a school of minnows and your gill rakers are actually bigger and spread apart a little wider, you get very few of them. They start to figure out that that's not a winning proposition, and they start looking for bigger prey to feed on, and it turns into bluegill and big shad and things like that. So understanding the, the physical makeup of the fish and what it is, that again, that they like and what it is that they shy away from is really, really vitally important. As you put that together with the bluegill... And, and them seeing the colors, you know, I think red is a big deal. Uh, they're, they're saying, the saying now, or, or has been, purple's the new red. I've heard that. Now I've heard blue's the new purple. So as far as colors go, that's that's one of the things that a lot of folks get hung up on. And I agree to a certain extent that you're, that colors down the list a little ways in, in a lot of respects. Presentation to me is, you know, probably probably number one. Fishing where the fish are, not where they ain't. That's number one, actually. Uh, and then, you know, if I got the right presentation, then start getting into the right fly. It, I kind of, I kind of get hung on one type of fly and really work on what are the, you know, what are the 10 different ways I can present this, this zoo cougar, if you will, which is just a, a fly with a, with a, uh, a deer spun head floating, fish it sinking, fish it, you know, stripping, fish it swinging so there's a different lot of different things there but but as we get into the colors some interesting things start going on with fish whenever they start getting that fight or that flight instinct and we, we were talking about this the other day the bluegills and, and 
you know, bass chasing bluegills, and I think you had some some pretty interesting stuff to talk about there as far as the colors and that sort of thing. When the when the blood's flowing in those fish, and you'll see this in every fish, like in in the colder water, you'll see that sometimes that their gills are even redder, or their gill rakers down in their gills are even redder. And when that blood is rushing because they're trying to get away, it does create that red. So a hint of red is always good. And if you if you just do your history lessons and go back and look at if you collect old baits from, it could be 50, 60, 70, even 100 years ago, there was always a little splash of red. And typically, if you look at some old-time pictures, uh, even the things that were depicting people fishing, it was a red and white bait. You had some of each color, but red was definitely on the head. And the reason I put a red hook on the front of my crankbaits is I think they're drawn to that red, and most of the time that's where they're going to hit. So it would make sense that with the old-timers that were fishing with artificial baits, we're putting red on the front of that because they want, that was going to be the most logical place. If the fish is biting there, it's more likely to get hooked. And when we start talking about, uh, there's a feeding mode, and it's, I think they're probably in a neutral or negative feeding mode, regardless of what the fish is, the majority of the time. You can make a case for certain things, and you know, but for, for the most part, you have to go out there and fool that fish and convince it. And for me, water temperature, and most of the time we're talking about surface water temperature. And here again, one, my admiration for the people who are fly fishing and wading and all that. Well, when you're wading, you don't need a depth finder. And you, 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 if you're like me, the only temperature gauge I got is a little pool thermometer, and I keep it in my kayak and toss it out because temperature is going to tell you a lot. Now, you put a bass in 70-degree water, and it's pretty happy. You put a trout in 70-degree water, and it's kind of kind of thinking, boy, this is not good, you know, that I am i can't breathe. You right. know, so it's a completely different deal. And it's it's understanding for for example uh and i'm not i i don't have the i don't have the statistics or a factual thing to back up the trout but i can tell you with a bass you can put a bass in in 45 degree water and take a six inch shiner and have a six pound bass eat that it takes it essentially six days to digest that you can take the same six pound bass the same six inch shiner and put that bass in 82 degree water and it's gone in six hours so when's it going to feed more often? Well, you can catch, you know, when people say, we well, can't catch them because it's winter, they still have to eat. It's your job to make it look like something to eat. And if you have to, because they're opportunistic feeders, you have to present that in what's a very shrunken down strike zone. Again, I don't think you'd see a, you know, there's a big difference in a peacock bass moving 20 feet to hit a topwater bait that's got big propellers and probably looks it's about the size of a cigar and a trout looking at a, a size 20, 22 nymph that's floating by that it's going to come by and, and, and it's going to just ease up to that and grab it or, you know, dimple the surface and grab something. So understanding how temperature, moon phase, water clarity, how the fish relate to all that is really a key. It's not to say that you can't catch them any other time, you know, because I know people, you know, I, I was always proud of the fact that when I was bass fishing that I caught them throughout the year. Every month, if there wasn't, I call it hard water. If there's not ice, if there's not hard water, I can catch a fish. I'm sure I can catch one. But, you know, understanding what it's going to take to do that, it changes and it varies. And, again, then you're going back and relying on that memory bank that you've got and understanding what the lure is supposed to do. And, again, the simplicity of fly fishing really lends itself to this as much as anything else. If you talk about triggering and attracting qualities, it's really, really vital to understand that. Back to the red. So we, we do it a, a few different ways. You know, you might, on a streamer, you might take a piece of red marabou and tie it down one side to look like it's got, you know, some blood coming out of the gill. So if it's injured and maybe maybe it's going to trigger some red and the fish is going to, predator fish, hopefully it's going to see that. But also back in the day, people would buy cigarettes and they would have that little ring, and I don't know, for, for those of, of, of those folks out there who have smoked or have been around somebody that smoked back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, somewhere in there, there was that little red ring uh, of plastic around the, uh, a pack of cigarettes, and uh, certain certain types or certain makes of cigarettes had red. Kids around the Appalachia would go look for those, those rings laying on the ground, and it was maybe I'm holding up it's maybe a eighth of an inch eighth, eighth of an inch wide and they would tie that into their fly like on the tail of their fly you would you would hear you know a red ass this and a, a red ass that and it was that red a lot of times was made out of something like that pack of cigarettes that ring off of that pack of cigarettes that off that plastic and they would tie that in to imitate that red color even on a fly like even on a dry fly they would do that so there's if there's not some validity to that 
there should be because it's been around for for a long, long time. The triggering qualities that, that we're talking about there, I mean, you've got lots of different things. There's 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 colors. I'm getting kind of where I, I'm, I'm. I've always loved white because I love the to the shad kills and that sort of thing. But kind of going back to natural colors and natural types of of materials, kind of getting away right now. This could change tomorrow. But right now I'm kind of getting away from those exotics and those those uh, things that are made of, of not natural um, materials. I've started kind of going smaller in size a little bit at times on my streamers and stuff. So I'm seeing a lot of folks that are, especially for muskie, they're throwing those, those 11, 12, 13-inch flies, 18-inch flies in some cases, which I've, I've thrown them and they're really kind of a pain in the, honestly. It doesn't make for such a great day of fishing. I'm starting to go smaller on those flies, and I've always been a little bit smaller than most folks on the on the size of the flies. But now I'm going even a little bit smaller. You know, down around the five six five six inches, seven inches sometimes. Even a little bit less articulation because I feel like I can get some of the natural natural qualities out of that, even just with with using some different natural materials. So there are a lot of things that trigger a fish. Uh, it's not always just I'm going to fish this one fly and that's going to be it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to venture because I've caught three fish today and I'm not going to change that out. Understanding how those fish, again, being in survival mode, is their first line of defense probably most likely is their eyesight. And again, that can be if you look at a muskie or crappie or a trout or a bass, you know, they've got the large eyes and they're set to either side. So they usually have a the ability to see about 270 degrees, 360 be full circle. So they can see almost all the way around them. So the first thing they got, their first line of defense is sight. And then if they hear something they don't like, you know, they can just hunker. They don't have to leave. They can hunker down. And usually in fish that are in six feet of water or more, they they won't leave. They'll just kind of stay, but they'll hunker down and go close mouth on you. And your point about the smaller baits, here's something for people to reflect on a little bit. The larger the bait the more likely it is to send the message that it's not real, that anything that you do in your presentation or the look of that bait that is unnatural will not... You've seen fish rise and then not take a bait. They see something that they don't like. They, They detect something in the presentation or in the color or the size or the profile or the movement that just doesn't seem right. And so they depend on that feeling to decide that they're not going to take it. So I advise people all the time when you're, if you're fishing, if you were fishing for food, I would say smaller baits and smaller retrieves almost every time will put a few fish on the stringer. If you're fishing for a big fish, you may have to throw that big bait. But once you get, once you learn the things that we've talked about, about what that, you know, what a bullfrog looks like when it's, when it's skimming along the shoreline, what a snake looks like, you could have a 12-inch water snake going across there. You can't get much bigger than 12 inch. I guess you could get a three-foot water snake. But what I'm saying is if it looks like a natural thing, they'll eat it. There's no question that they'll eat it. So going smaller means you're less likely to be caught with a bad presentation or a bad look. The profile matters. You know, for example, you know, uh, I, I don't. I'm, I never did fish at night for trout, but I did a lot of fishing at night for bass and people. So, uh, so what do you throw at night? And I said, black. And they said, well, how does black work at night? And I said, see, that's the problem. You're thinking like a person and you have to think like a fish. Hey, they're looking up. And regardless of whether you got, you know, a, a full moon or a new moon or no moon, they're looking up. Their eyes collect light five times better than ours do. So they see, they see the silhouette of something. They're never going to see anything better than what they're going to see black. And when I'm fishing at night, I use a slow, steady retrieve. I'm not going to make it hard on them. I'm going to make it easy on them to hone in on what exactly that is. Again, understanding the fish and what its physiology is and its physical limitations or advantages are, it's a huge deal. If you're using a dropper fly, if you're just drifting that down, a lot of times people say, I'm not catching anything on the primary and catching everything on the dropper. Well, that means that fish is, when there's, you know, with, with, with most fish, when they're subsurface, when they're when they're um, offshore subsurface, you know, a lot of times that's when they're going to be the hardest to catch. Like I said, when everything's right, if you have a big mayfly hatch or, or bless us a cicada hatch, when those are hitting the water, I mean, they're just it's it's it should be just as easy as it could be. Just lay that out there and just let it sit. Something will come up and eat it. So if they're you know if there's if, if if the food supply is stratified or if there's a little bit of food supply, or the water's really murky, you know, that establishes itself as a pattern, and in a couple of two, three days with a bass, they're going to hit. 
with a trout, they may have to wait until the water clears out. So there's, again, understanding that fish and what, how it reacts to different things. And as, as much as anything else, what's the indigenous food supply, the forage for that fish? And again, if it's a trout or a catfish or a striper or a walleye or a bass, what lives in that water that's, a, that it's a, that's around there that's their natural food supply? What is it they like the most and what's the most available? With bass, they eat more shad than they do anything else, not because they like it more, because it's more available. They can, there's schools of shad. You're competing with tens of thousands of shad sometimes. And so, you know, when you're doing that, one of the little tricks that I tell people, I says, if you want to catch a big fish, you upsize. When people say, now this is where I have a little difference with the trout fishermen when they say match the hatch. If you match the hatch and you use that li- logic for throwing what looks like a big shad to a to a bass, if it's not bigger than the other, it just blends in. It's just it's one more in the ten thousand shad that are in there. If you want it to stick out, you throw the oversized bait with a little bit of red. It may be a red hook, but you're throwing something that's bigger that makes it stick out. And if if the fish has got to move three feet to hit it, if he's got to hit one that's three inches or hit one that's eight inches it's going to hit the one that's eight inches if your presentation is good. So again, if thinking conventionally, there's nothing wrong with that, but also learning your own lessons and saying, you know, if your target is to catch a bunch of fish, do pretty much whatever you want. If your target is to catch a big fish, they've been conditioned. They kind of figure it out. They they depend on that survival skill, those, all those things, all those clues that they're getting that are negative clues, they become conditioned to avoid those. I don't think the big fish are any smarter. I think they have maybe a little bit better maybe different instincts than some of the other fish do we like to again like we like we talked about earlier we like to to talk about well that that fish is smart because he's you know living under that log he's been there forever and he doesn't come out but it between 2 a.m and 3 45 a.m and that's the only time he eats is from 3 40 to 3 45 the rest of the time he's just honing in on something we try to give those fish our own personalities our own and i think we're probably all guilty to some extent of that but in the end, I think they just have different, uh, we'll call it different instincts, maybe better, maybe not. Fishing the Smokies, high up their list is survival. That's that's way up their list. And that means staying away from otters, and that also means finding the right type of water, not getting eaten by a, a, a heron you know, or a bird of prey of some kind. High, high on that list. Same thing to a different extent, maybe. Uh, to the tailwater trout, they're looking out for eagles, ospreys, herons, treble hooks, and, and boats, and everything else, and, and trying to get a, a nice lie where there's some good oxygen, some food passing by, and a, and a way to get out of there if something comes up. So different instincts, different types of water, different types of fish, but bigger fish aren't always smarter, and I'm using air quotes here, do think they have a little bit better instinct-wise than, than some of the other fish. Yeah, they've just become conditioned to, to negative influences and positive influences. And there are certain places, again, if you're, you know, I used to do a seminar, I used to call it where to go and what to throw. And where to go means, like, if you're fishing moving water, most fish, they they will take the current but if there's a current break, they're going to be behind that. For example, if they're, you know, if you were fishing on the East Fork of the Stones River and you see a, a riffle and you, you're fishing for smallmouth and you know right below that riffle is a good resting place for them and things got to flow over the top of them, you throw over the, past the riffle, bring it back up because they usually face into the current. So understanding the fish and what it's like and what its comfort zone is, what it likes to eat and how it likes that presented is a gigantic deal. I'm sure it's the same way with trout. I mean, there's places where you're saying it's the like not the. You know, I always advise people when you're talking about fishing, just ex, just take out the words never and always from your vocabulary because <laughs> the, the, they will surprise you when somebody says, "Well, you'll never catch a trout in you know in six inches of water." It's like I, I, depth to me is relative, and if the food source is there and there's you know they can get in the shade of a tree and there's some. And there's some kind of a uh, aquatic vegetation. They may well be in six, eight inches of water. I, I, I can't say yes or no, but I'm saying it's you know you'll learn something new every time you go out. And, and I wouldn't discount anything. There are certainly places that would probably deserve three or four more casts. But again, if you look at just what you were talking about, when something comes in overhead on a fish, for the most part, that's not a good thing. When something's moving and casting a shadow, and it's exactly why for years. Before people were it was really popular, I was using an underhand pitch cast because I wasn't waving my arms. You get a, you get that 
bait just an inch above the surface of the water, and it just barely dimples the water when it goes in. A lot of my strikes were happening as soon as the bait hit the water and started to fall and doing what it was supposed to do, a fish would grab it. You know, that's happened to everybody probably, that it never you never have to do anything with the bait. That means you got the right bait in the right place at the right time, and that retrieve speed or lack of, and doing, of doing nothing will catch you a fish. It's like creeping something along the bottom. That's not a normal thing. When they see something creeping along the bottom, it's not a normal thing. It's something that they look at that and say, that's more than likely food. They don't look at that as a negative thing. It's more than likely food. And again, the cadence of a topwater lure, you should be able to throw out a, if you if you want to throw, and I've seen uh, articulated frogs, and I, I love the look of, of deer hair baits. And, you know, it's, it's dragonflies, it's frogs, it's uh, uh, field mice, you know, all those things. When you throw those out there and you can wait for all those ripples to dissipate, if you've got the courage to do that and, you you know, you'll allow that and then you twitch it one time, that is, that fish is, you can imagine in your mind, that fish has seen that enter its territory. It comes up ever so slowly. It's eyeing that bait up and it's watching it. And the first time it just barely moves, that's it. It can't take it anymore. So there's there's a lot to be said for that. And again, the lessons that we as bass fishermen and uh, pan fishermen and crappie and calf, we can learn from trout fishermen. There's always stuff that intersects, and it's kind of like um, it's the uh, again the attracting qualities for any fish are going to be sizes, uh, bright colors, um, if it makes a noise, things like that. But the attracting that just gets your attention. The really important part is the triggering qualities, and those are easily swallowed shapes, natural swimming motions, and a lot of times, neutral colors. When you find baits that are heavily laden with triggering qualities, those are the baits that consistently will catch fish. I was trout fishing in Missouri. It's where I, it's how I started, and I was fishing in a state park, and I was watching a guy, and I was pretty good at it, but I was using some fly rod, some spinning rod, and I was watching this guy, and he was throwing a fly rod, and I was I, I just marveled at how often he was catching a fish, and I finally, like you talked about earlier, I worked up the courage to walk over, and I said, would you mind telling me what it is that you're doing? I said, I, he said, I'm throwing an, an army green bug is what he called it. And he was literally wearing a green army green sweater. And he would pull thread off of that and sit there and retie flies. And it wasn't a teeny tiny fly, but it was a very simple little pattern. And he was just catching fish after fish after fish. And I watched him. And again, it was like, Part of it was the bug. The other part of that was he was very patient. You know, he, and he didn't feel like he had to overwork the bait. And those fish were telling him, you're doing it right by biting almost every drift that he made. Early on in this conversation, we talked about wading and, and waves and motors and that sort of thing. But one of the things that you just said happened to me in real life in a time and a place where I had a lot invested. So I was really trying to be on point. And since I had the time and the energy invested, I was also really paying attention. I think this is a good place for us kind of to, kind of to bring this thing back around and, and, and end up where we kind of where we started. We were on the White River try to go over there at least once a year uh sometimes i make it and sometimes i don't this particular time i was over there with with four friends of mine we had a place white on the right on the white and the water was absolutely you've heard the term gin clear it was gin clear and i know that for a fact because one of the guys brought some gin i was able to <laughs> i was able to, to measure that up a little bit and make sure that it was indeed gin clear so we take we take turns you know somebody rows the other two fish we we rotate in and out and we're pretty good about it nobody really ever feels like they have rowed too much or fished too little talking about you were talking about doing the underhand pitch and I'm not I'm not saying that we all need to go to underhand casting but it is something to think about and I'm going to put it in this context I was in front of the boat the water was gin clear there were hundreds of fish around I mean I within my sight I bet you I could see 30 foot 30 fish not all huge you know we think white river huge fish and all that not all of them are huge. There were some really big ones in there, but there were a whole lot of other ones. So when you would lift up to cast, even if you could start, you know, without lifting the line off of the water, even if you could start in the air, like get the, get the line behind you to lip, pick it up and load the rod, whatever you tried to do, as soon as that line came over the water, you would see 20 fish scatter, for, especially in, in one area that I'm thinking about, which was some very slow, calm water with some big boulders around it, laying in it. So as I noticed that, you try to think of ways, you know, maybe I, maybe I need to cast a little more sidearm, maybe I need to do this, maybe I need to not double haul, you know, because that's more action that they can see. 
what I finally laid, landed on was I'm just going to cast the thing out there and, and I'm going to do a reach cast so that I'm ready. Whenever the fly hits the water, it's going straight to the bottom. I'm going to already have a good mend in there. Uh, and we were fishing nymphs over there because it was just one of those days that we were all just out there having a good time, uh, enjoying each other's company, enjoying some good fishing. But what I did notice was those fish would scatter and you almost wouldn't wouldn't pick up a fish until your fly got past or beyond where those that initial group of fish were, were fleeing to. So they would they would take off and they would run and you could see you I could the whole thing unfolded right in front of me. I saw the whole thing happen. And it happened enough times that I got enough repetition to figure out here's what's going on. I would cast, they would flee, they would settle down just outside of my casting range. They would turn back, turn their head back up, and I would have to float past, float the fly past that initial group of fish into what I would, what I started calling new fish, before I would get a hit. So something else for us to think about, especially as as fly anglers, you know, it's very important to be compact with your cast as much as you can be, and and dropping that that presentation in there with as few of false casts as you can, especially on a clear day, especially with, with gin clear water, knowing that maybe I need to start my cast upstream a little further uh, so that if anything is there and it flees, it'll flee downstream. And then whenever I get ready, once I get my presentation just the way it needs to be, maybe by that time I'm past all the fish that are uncomfortable or are sulk, sulking or have, have soaked to the bottom or, or have hunkered down like we were talking about. Get past those fish, and once I'm past that fish, then my possibility of getting a good look or getting hit or getting a good fish on goes up just because I changed that presentation to further up the river. I didn't necessarily move any, if I, especially if I'm waiting, I'm not going to try to walk down and crunch through rocks and stuff like that. But my whole presentation being up the river with minor mends and minor subtle adjustments along the way to get it into the feeding lane when it gets down to the fish, maybe my catch rate goes up just a little bit more. And that kind of goes back to what you were talking about is, you know, doing that underhand pitch. For you, it's an underhand pitch, which makes total sense. A whole lot less waving of, of things going on. With us, it may be move it upstream a little bit with your presentation and feeding down to the fish. When you start swooping things, even if the others don't see it, it becomes a group effort that like we all have to get out of here kind of a thing. So again, understanding how they defend, where they're going to be, why they're going to be there, it really becomes predictable. And especially with fish, if you if you look at different times of the year, one of the things that people probably very rarely think about is when you get to fall, every species of fish starts feeding up. And the clues that they get are that the water temperature is dropping. But the other thing is, and people don't probably attribute a lot to this, is the days are getting shorter. That sends a signal to those fish that winter's coming. Regardless of where you are, the days are getting shorter, the water's getting colder, all of that kind of stuff. It's kind of like when we start looking for our sweaters and our jackets. You know, it may be late September before it happens, but we know it's coming. Understanding that that's a good time to be on the water. And, you know, with most people, they don't, I don't know what disposable income is, but <laughs> I also am not sure that when people talk about, well, I don't have time to fish, it's like, well, if you tell me you're cutting your grass, your grass is going to be like a sixteenth of an inch longer. Go fish today because today might be your either your last day or it could be your best day. And there's been times when, I, you know, I follow the moon phases and I believe in those. I follow the water temperature. I believe in that. I know when they're going to be in pre-spawn, when they're in spawn, when they're in post-spawn. And I, like everybody else, I've heard every different excuse you can get that, you know, they're not biting today because they're all on bed. Well, they're never all doing the same thing at the same time. And I don't care which fish, fish species you're talking about. But, you know, positioning yourself and understanding that fish, and as much as anything else, is understanding what it is that you can do to make that bait look realistic, put it in the strike zone and keep it there for as long as you possibly can with a natural uh, a natural movement and a retrieve speed that's going to induce that fish when they're if they're just kind of like on the fence of whether they're going to hit or not that they say, "You know what? That looks real. I'm going to eat it." They big fish don't get big from not eating. They will eat when you make it look right. And there's a, there's a lot to it. I mean, the realistic presentation is a big, big deal. I, and you probably talk about that in, in your book, uh, which we need to hit on for just a second here. So you wrote a book, I know it's been around for probably a year or so, I guess, something like that. Um, Probably about, yeah, about eight months, probably. What's, what is the name of that book? 
the, the name of the book is I'll Be Tennessee and you. And I started doing that on TV when I were to release my first fish. Just I hate to use the pun intended as a hook where people would remember, hey, that's that guy that, you know. So when I were to release a fish and I had been told I'd been writing magazine articles for over 35 years and people said, oh, you need to write a book. And it's like I'd never written a book. I didn't really want to take the time because it's a time-consuming thing, and I wanted to do it right if I was going to do it. So I lost a lot of fishing time last year climbing up here in my riding loft and doing this, and it's called I'll Be Tennessee, and the subtitle is A History, and for the cute effect, his story, some fish tales and tips, and it, it ranges from my grandparents all emigrating over here from Sicily all the way through me, uh, the people that I've met, and the fortunate, uh, how fortunate I've been to meet people in and outside the outdoor industry. Guide trips in Canada, I guided in Canada for 27 summers, and there's a chapter called Canoes and Campfires, which I, I took the fly rod up there. You know, I love the fly rod enough that I thought, man, would I love to catch like a 25-pound northern pike on a big, you know, <laughs> you, you kind of get pretty particular and pretty specific about taking the deer hair mouse or a dragonfly pattern up there and casting around the pencil grass or the lily pads and catching a big a big northern pike and so you know there's a lot of stories in there and it's kind of like what we're doing here where we're relating our experiences and i wanted people to understand is that i've caught a lot of fish and i've caught a lot of big fish and so uh, there's a saying that says when an old person dies, it's like a library burning down. I want to leave a legacy where people can say they could go through this book and they can see that the American dream is, is still alive, that the, you, you there are things that you can do, and whether it's media work or I got involved in karate for 20 years and fought in tournaments and did radio, TV, guided in Canada and done a lot of really neat things, but caught a lot of big fish and learned a lot of lessons along the way, and I want to pass those on. And it's available on Amazon, and it's a... Uh, it, I tried to price it at 19.95. People said I could have got 20 bucks more for it, but I wanted to be available for anybody who really wanted it, whether that's a 15-year-old kid that's cutting yards or a 55-year-old man that says, hey, I want to get a little better at this. I wanted to be a book that would reach both of those people and for a price point that was very, very affordable. So it was fun to write, and I get a lot of positive uh, – I've gotten a lot of positive response out of it. So it's it's been a fun thing. I think it's probably worth the, the 1995, 1999 to uh, just read about a, a trip in Canada. As a kid, I went to Canada with my parents, and, and we probably fished up there, but I can't – you know, I, I don't have that in my memory bank right now. But I've got what I would think would be the perfect Canadian trip and I don't know that it matters the species. I think it's the more the setting and the, the folks that I would want to be with, you know, to, to spend that time with. And you were talking about meeting a lot of folks in the outdoor industry. I mean, this the whole fishing experience for me has started to to evolve from I want to go catch a fish, I want to go catch the biggest fish, I want to catch the most fish, all that, into, man, I, I look forward to spending a day in the boat with one of my best friends, you know. It, or I fish, I fish with somebody this week. We just had a fantastic time. I mean, she caught a ton of fish, but it was a lot of fun. We had a good time. That's when you take it to the next level. You know, when it's not, I don't worry about catching fish anymore. I don't even worry about catching big fish. I mean, I like it, but I don't worry about it because I've done it. And to, to me, to sit there and instruct somebody and watch them set the hook on a big fish or just any fish, you know, maybe their first fish. And B- Bill Dance endorsed the book, which was, to me, it should say a lot to people about He's been a friend for over 40 years. And, you know, if he didn't believe in it, he wouldn't do it. And it's a, uh, the book was fun. It's got, it, it's not just about fishing. It's about life in general or not life in general. It's about a really magical a guy that was lucky and as blessed as anybody you're ever going to meet uh, the places that I've gone, the things that I've done. And there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of fish tails and tips in there. And the Canada thing was, it was uh, when you get to travel, I've been lucky to, I, I fished in Mexico on a lake that had been closed for seven years by the government and got to go in there and play around and do a video down there. And when I went <laughs> to Canada and decided that, uh, I, you know, that was so much fun that I wanted to guide and do that and take people up there and you see moose and bears and hear wolves and you hear owls hooting at night and you catch more fish than not even be legal. And, you know, a five pound smallmouth doesn't even turn a head up there when you're, when you're doing it right. And I, you know, it's just, it was just, when you see a, a smallmouth hit a surface lure and it looks like somebody threw a sore lid out of an airplane. And I mean, it's just stuff that will be emblazoned in your mind forever. And then you, you know, you're cooking over a campfire and you're, telling the stories that you, like you said, you were talking about. And, you know, I got to, got to fishing, like I said, I fished in Hawaii in a freshwater uh, 
pineapple, uh, the Dole pineapple, their irrigation lakes. And, you know, it's, it's, you can't always be there, but the highest praise I've ever gotten was from a, a young boy in a wheelchair that had all the articles that I'd ever written. And I, I asked him, I said, what, what is it about my stuff? And he said, you make me feel like I'm right there next to you. So you can take somebody from a wheelchair to being right next to you in a John boat or a canoe, you've accomplished something. And uh, all the checks are cash. This is all now about, you know, letting people know that this is available to everybody. And here's a couple of little tips and tricks that might put another fish or two in your boat. Now that we're on the backside of this podcast, I am sure that somebody out there is going to get something out of this. And some of the things we've talked about reminded me, oh, yeah, I need to get back to that and kind of sway away and start kind of start trying new things. You find some new things that worked and you kind of lay down the old things. But eventually you come back around and start picking them back up and gathering them back up and using them. But anyway, Joey, I, man, I, I have enjoyed this. Is over an hour has gone by and it seems like we started about 10 minutes ago. So that... <laughs> That's been a good conversation. Uh, and I, what I'd like to do right now is also in the future, whenever we can get our schedules together and things work out, I want to be able to sit down and, and continue this conversation and maybe pick up a few more uh, topics along the way. We hit, we hit on a, a variety of them today, and, and some of them at a pretty high level. So get down and dirty and really get into some of the, some of the different things that we've talked about and also touch on some of the things that we didn't get a chance to talk talk about today. well one of the one of the chapters that i really like is you know because we're not doing anything that somebody else can't do you, do, you might have to you know skip a day of school or work which is not the end of the world but one of the chapters that i really like is is entitled i'm playing checkers while the rest of the world plays chess yeah. but i've tried to simplify this as much as i possibly could <laughs> and it really is you can simplify this or make it just as complicated as you want you can make it very inexpensive you could sit on the creek bank with a cane pole or you can be in an eighty thousand dollar bass boat or you can be anywhere in between so it's really it's to me the fun part about this is we're not doing anything that somebody else can't do there there are no real secrets but there there is technique and understanding and i think those two things are way more valuable than the most expensive drift boat most expensive jackson kayak the most expensive bass boat the most expensive ocean going vessel the most expensive ocean skiff really understanding techniques and really working on your working on on, on your craft every every chance you get it may not be every day maybe once a week or once a month but putting that time in and really dedicating yourself to to getting getting better at something don't necessarily have to be the best because i don't know what the best really means especially in this but anyway your best. That's, yeah. that's exactly well, right it's I your thank best you for, I, I thank you for having me on and uh, as we sign off i'll just say this i'll be tennessee in you it's joey monleone joey appreciate you coming out and thanks everybody for listening and see you next time on southeastern fly